All right, good evening, everybody. Good evening, and welcome to Wednesday Night Academy. New Testament, redemptive history, seven key beliefs that define Christianity. It's our topic for this evening. Um, can someone tell me what the mission statement of New City Church is? To help people find and follow Jesus. Can somebody tell me what the purpose of New City Academy is? To equip disciple makers. It's short and sweet. To help you become effective in helping people find and follow Jesus. Okay. And in part, that means that you need to be, to some extent, biblically literate. And if you didn't want to be biblically literate, then you wouldn't be in this room tonight and wouldn't be taking this course. Of course, being biblically literate means a little bit more than just knowing facts about the Bible, being able to name the 12 tribes of Israel or being able to know how old Jairus' daughter was that Jesus raised from the dead. Anybody know the answer to that one? 12. Very good. The answer is 12. So some of you are biblically literate with those facts. But being biblically literate also means having a, a deeper understanding and meaning of how God's grand narrative unfolds from the first words of Genesis all the way through the last words of Revelation. Uh, and we understand those grand themes, we can help people find the follow of Jesus by walking them through the major themes of the Bible that point to Jesus as the one who forgives sins and is the source of eternal life. Okay. So <clears throat> tonight's biblical theme is basically your beliefs about Christianity from the New Testament that can help explain the story of redemption. Okay? Our big idea for this evening is being one of Jesus' disciples means you subscribe to certain key beliefs that define Christianity. Uh, it's important that we have certain beliefs that set Christianity apart from any of the other world's religions. And our objectives tonight are this. <clears throat> At the conclusion of this session, you should have an understanding of the seven key beliefs about Christianity and be able to explain how these beliefs can help people find and follow Jesus. Very simple objective. But before we dive into uh, the seven particular beliefs we're going to be looking at tonight, let's do a quick review of our acrostic uh, in the casket empty. So we're, we're, since we're New Testament, we're doing the empty acrostic. So what does the E stand for? Okay, expectations, and the M stands for? All right, and the P? All right, very good, and, oh, okay, and then the T? Okay, and the Y? Yes, and that lesson is yet to come, right? So keep coming and you'll, and you'll get there. Okay, let's um, do a, continue our little review here. Um, Anybody, uh, what are some of the things or something that stands out to you that you learned during the expectations part of this uh, course? You can pull out your Bible timeline if you have it. Those are the crypt sheet there if you want to use that. Anybody, something that you learned during that? So nobody was paying attention. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
God was really working. It was a period of silence as far as there was no new special revelation that God spoke that was recorded in his word. But God was very, very busy in the world during that time. Very good. What else? Yes, Keith. Okay. Sort of okay. Uh, can do you recall exactly what con- contribution they made? Uh, they and- yeah. Uh, and they were trying to uh, make sure that the Jewish people continued uh, separate from uh, other influences. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. So the, the four major parties uh, that are in play when we get to the pages of the New Testament, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, they, they developed during that 400-year period. Very good. Anybody else? Anything else? Very good. God's presence was, was still palpable. It was still there. Okay. What about uh, the Messiah lessons? What did you learn or do you remember from the Messiah lessons? New covenant. New covenant. Okay. Which is what? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Next week there's going to be a test. <laughs> study. Yeah. It struck me how much the Jews were looking for a military type Yeah, the expectation of the Jewish people was not the same uh, form of Messiah that Jesus actually was. They were looking for a military deliverer from the yoke of Roman oppression. Right, very good. What else during the Messiah lessons did you pick up? Chosen by God, anointed by the Holy Spirit, perform mighty acts. Good. Okay. Anybody else? Just all the prophecies of Once Jesus appears on the scene, uh, we begin to see how the prophecies from the Old Testament start to be fulfilled. Uh, on like page after page in the New Testament, we see that happening. how the Old and New Testament are bridged together. And uh, anybody in particular that uh, comes to mind who helped build that bridge? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Baptist, you see, at the the very last pages of the Old Testament, Micah, we see reference to this person uh, that uh, when you turn to the the New Testament, you see almost verbatim some of the same descriptions uh, of John the Baptist. So he is a bridge that really connects uh, the, the two Testaments. Okay. What about uh, Pentecost? What do you recall from the Pentecost lessons? Well, again, I learned that it was a high Jewish community that attracted everybody that had been dispersed throughout the whole world. I, I didn't understand that. That's, that's why they were all together there. 
As Pentecost was a standard Jewish holiday, one of the major feasts, and it attracted people from all over the Roman world, uh, the Jews who had been dispersed, uh, to come and celebrate. And you know, we read that in the pages, uh, especially in Acts, where we see it lists the number of locations where people came from to participate in the Pentecost celebration. So it wasn't something, it wasn't a one-time event that just happened that day. It was something that had been, been uh, rehearsed and practiced and observed over the years. Good. Anything else? Yes. That's when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost. That's when the church started. The Holy Spirit birthed the church, gave it the power to do what it does on the day of Pentecost. Very good. More than 10,000 believed. More than 10,000 believed? It was a big day. It was a big day. All right, and what about teaching? This is where we are now. Uh, what did, did you learn last week about te- some of the teachings? Paul? God has given the church a mission. God gave the church a mission? What's that mission, Paul? Uh, tell the world about Jesus. Tell the world about Jesus. <laughs> Make disciples. It's what we're about here at New City. Carrying it on after 2,000 years. What else? Gentiles become part of the family. That's a big part of what happens, uh, you know, during this uh, this time period. And uh, you know, with Paul especially taking uh, the word of God, you know, to the Gentiles, uh, and we see him doing a lot of teaching uh, when he's on the road during his three missionary journeys. Okay. Anything else from the teaching lessons that we want to review for today? It's not about buttercups and roses. <laughs> Do you want to unpack that? <laughs> uh, it, it's it's some, some of the teaching is very difficult. You know, uh, and we'll touch on some of that tonight, as a matter of fact. Okay, but very good. So that's a nice review to kind of get us started for the evening. Uh, you should always have an opportunity, you know, as you're going from lesson to lesson, to just maybe take a couple of minutes to review, you know, what you've seen and what you've learned and then, you know, and build on where we're going here in the New Testament lessons. So tonight, talking about these seven beliefs uh, that help define Christianity, uh, we're talking about Bible doctrine. And uh, when we did the lesson on the Holy Spirit uh, back in October, uh, we talked a little bit about this, about Bible doctrine. Uh, And when we talk about doctrine, what we're really talking about are religious beliefs. Uh, We, back in October, we used this particular definition uh, for doctrine. It's a settled teaching within the system of belief presented for acceptance. Uh, Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Our confession. Uh, And by, uh, by this, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is simply salvation and forgiveness of sins through Jesus the Messiah. And the holding fast to our confession really does two things. And we touched on this a little bit uh, when we were talking about uh, doctrine back in October. One is uh, the confession gives us confidence that Jesus is the source of our salvation. And another is that it helps, if you have strong doctrine, it helps us combat what? False teaching, heresy, uh, or even, uh, even apostasy. 
so uh, as the writer of Hebrew talks about, you know, drifting away, not wanting, not wanting us as believers to drift away. Regarding this particular phrase in Hebrews, uh, let us hold fast to our confession, uh, the uh, English uh, Anglican bishop of late 19th century, J.C. Ryle, said this, no one will ever be anything or do anything in religion unless they believe something. No one ever fights earnestly against the world, the flesh, the devil, unless they have engraven on their heart certain great principles which they believe. Now, over the centuries, has the church made any effort to codify our core beliefs? Yes. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, what might some of those attempts be? The Nicene Creed. It's good. The Apostles' Creed. Right. The Westminster Confession. Thank you, Brother Paul. Paul and I served on the session at another Presbyterian church many years ago, and so we're well indoctrinated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So thank you, Paul. Uh, what else? What other documents, confessions do you know about? There is the Augsburg Confession. Does that ring a bell? It does to some of you. Uh, of uh, A.D. 1530. Uh, the Belgic Confession, A.D. 1561. The Heidelberg Confession in 1576. And Paul mentioned the uh, Westminster uh, Confession 1647 is when that came along. And all of these confessions uh, seek to capture the great principles of which Christians believe. And they're very similar in what they talk about, obviously, because of uh, Keith. Would Luther's uh, 95 Thesis be considered one of those? And let's just focus on one. Uh, it would not be one of the confessions. It's not one of the church-recognized confessions. It's kind of, it, was a, it was an important document, but not of a confessional uh, type. So uh, the list of Christian confessions uh, or doctrines is, is many. This happens to be just one graphic illustration uh, that I came across. And you can see this is an attempt to take some high-level doctrines such as God's revelation, God himself, creation, the fall, redemption, the church, and restoration. And out of that, there are... Uh, subparts to all of those. Again, this is just one particular illustration. There could be many others. Some of these that are uh, small circles coming off as, as branches are major doctrines in and of themselves, uh, but they're sublisted here in this particular diagram. Uh, so if you, uh, you can spend a long time researching and looking at all the various doctrines of, uh, of the church. Uh, but for our purposes tonight, the, the authors of uh, Casket Empty have come up with certain aspects of particular high-level doctrines that they have uh, presented to us as seven key beliefs that help define Christianity. In, in and of themselves, uh, most of these that they've listed are part of a higher-level doctrine. For example, uh, Jesus is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. That falls under the doctrine of Christ. We have justification by faith. That actually touches on three different doctrines. The doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of Christ. Uh, you'll be getting a PDF of all my notes, by the way, because there's a lot here. So, but take, you know, I encourage you to take your own notes, but we'll be getting a PDF out to you. Uh, Sarah, remind me to make sure I send that to you next day or so. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, then the presence of the Holy Spirit, of course, that's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. That falls under the doctrine of the church, as does obedience of faith among the nations. That also falls under the doctrine of the church. And similarly, the calling of Christians to be living sacrifices, that's another subpart of the higher doctrine of the doctrine of the church. And then there's the final one that the authors list in the book, and that is Christ will return in glory as judge. And that falls under the doctrine of the uh, uh, consummation of all things, or some call it the doctrine of eschatology, uh, or the doctrine of uh, the final things. So the, as you can see, so there are these several um, high-level doctrines, which most of these beliefs that we're highlighting on tonight kind of fall under. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of, one of the, each of these seven tonight. And what we'll do is we'll look at the first three, and then we'll have our first table discussion question. Then we'll do the next three and have another table discussion question. And then we're going to wrap up with the final one, with Christ will return and glory is judged. And we could do a whole day on that alone. Uh, just fascinating, you know, the, the, the end, end things. So uh, let me stop there. Any questions before we get rolling into each of these seven beliefs? All right. Okay, so first, Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, the Lord. Again, this falls under the doctrine of Christ. The center of Christianity is the Son of God, incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Say it again. The center of Christianity is the Son of God, incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. From the first words of Genesis to the last words of Revelation, the Bible is... One redemptive story rooted in history with Jesus as the hero. Okay. Jesus uh, is the um, second person of the Trinity, and this uh, ascribes to him deity. So Jesus' uh, deity stems from the fact that he is the second person of the Trinity. And his divinity is displayed throughout the New Testament in various scriptures. In the notes that you're going to be getting, I have scripture references uh, listed. And then we have Jesus uh, humanity, the eternal son of God took upon himself humanity, not that Jesus the man acquired divinity. You see the difference? Okay. The eternal son of God took upon himself humanity, not that Jesus the man acquired divinity. In the incarnation, Jesus took on the person of uh, the Son of God took on the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And within the person of, the, of Jesus of Nazareth, there are two natures, divine and human. And so we say Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And the virgin birth affirms the historical fact of the incarnation where the eternal Son of God took on flesh. So again, the eternal son of God took upon himself humanity, not that the man, uh, Jesus, acquired divinity. Theologians call these two um, natures being in one person the hypostatic union. Okay, the hypostatic union. Right. Uh, hypostatic comes from a Greek word meaning personal. And so what the hypostatic union simply means is the personal union of the two natures in one person, Jesus. Okay. And suffice it to say, this is 
a mystery that defines our understanding. We can't explain it, we don't understand it, but we just know it to be true. One of those things that we have to take on faith. And so uh, we can see in the New Testament uh, various affirmations of Jesus' humanity. Um, he experienced a lot of common things that we all experience. He experienced hunger, he experienced thirst, he experienced weariness and sorrow uh, and pain. Uh, a lot of things that we experience in our human life. The Bible also confirms uh, that uh, Jesus is sinless. Uh, and while the Bible does affirm his full humanity, it says that he lived his humanity without sin. Okay? And uh, this, of course, is essential to the, Jesus' nature and his work of salvation. Why is it important that Jesus did not sin for our salvation? Why is that important? What is it that's important about that? He's the blameless lamb, okay? He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the sacrifice without spot or blemish. He is sinless, and it took a sinless sacrifice uh, in order to atone for our sins. So here's the question that you see kind of up here. Uh, was Jesus able not to sin, or was Jesus not able to sin? The latter coast, kind of do a little poll here. How many you say Jesus was able not to sin? Okay. And how many of you say Jesus was not able to sin? Okay. Anybody want to defend their position? All right. Uh, able not to sin means sinning's possible, and it would be his choice not to sin. Okay. Okay. Not able to sin means he's perfect, and God is perfect. Not able to sin means he's perfect, and God is perfect. Okay, Paul. Okay. Okay. You're going with that. Okay. Is 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 falling into temptation the same thing as sinning? Okay. Is being tempted to sin the same thing as sinning? Okay. I'll let you take both. If you can defend both, go ahead. Any comment, or are you just going to go with both? All right, okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't dis- I don't disagree with anything anyone said about being able not to sin. I'll start with not able to sin because it's God's nature. God cannot sin because he can't sin. I mean, whatever he does is right. So it's a fascinating question. Uh, one that uh, you know theologians like to get into a, get into a room and kick around, you know, kind of thing. That's kind of kind of stuff. But um, so consider this: uh, not able to sin, which means that sinning is not even a possibility. Okay, it's applied to Jesus. This is derived from the doctrine of communicatio idiomatum. <laughs> communicatio idiomatum. Okay. I'm not going to spell it. You'll get it in the notes. It means the communication of the properties. 
Okay. When applied theologically to the incarnation, this means that the divine attributes of the Son of God and the, hu- and the human nature of Jesus of Nazareth were ascribed to a single person. And one of the attributes of having a divine nature is inability to sin. God cannot do anything that is contrary to his nature. Therefore, since the attributes of God's nature were ascribed to Jesus the Son, it is logically, it logically follows he was not able to sin. Now, does that make a difference to anybody? Does that raise questions for anybody? It should, in some way. Like, like what kind of questions does that raise? Okay, he was human. He took on flesh, so he felt the temptations. He felt the temptations. He could, but he did not. Therefore, he could, but he did not sin. Yeah. Yeah. So, temptation is like pressure. Yeah, temptation is like pressure. Yeah, it's and, being enticed. And, and if you're not able to sin, then there wouldn't have been any pressure. Well, see, that's like, what's the... So, like, was this kind of just a, an exercise in futility for Satan? Yeah, as kind of Paul mentioned. So, if Jesus, if Jesus never sinned because he was incapable of sinning, was he really tempted by the, as John puts it in 1 John 2.16, was he really tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Um, and if not, how then can he really empathize with us? <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> All these prides stem from the likeness of God, which is the human being. Mm-hmm. And so in all of these prides, there is an element of perfection and pureness right. and loveliness and godliness. Right. It is sin that turns these pleasurable things to selfishness self-indulgence, right. to making oneself God okay. rather than giving oneself to God. Yeah. If we entertain the idea that Jesus' divine nature barred him from immediately, intimately experiencing life's trials and tribulations, just as we do, then we're forced to ask questions like, why did he weep over Jerusalem? Why did he experience outrage over the money changers' activity in the temple? Why did he get angry and overturn the table? Why was he deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled when he saw Mary and the others weeping over Lazarus' death? And why did, he experience, why did he experience sweat like blood dripping from his forehead in the Garden of Gethsemane? All of these things testify to the fact that Jesus can identify with us intimately what it's like to be human, even though he never sinned and possibly even though he was incapable of sinning, doesn't negate the depth of his empathy and identification with us as human. We can kick that around more some other time, but let's move on. Okay. Jesus as our high priest, Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement 
for the sins of the people. A.W. Pink, early 20th century uh, British theologian, had this to say, Oh, what a Savior is ours, the Almighty God, yet the all-tender man, one who is as far above us as his original nature and present glory as the heavens are above the earth, yet one who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, one who is the creator of the universe, yet one who became man, lived his life on the same plane ours has lived, passed through the same trials we experience, and suffered not only as we do, but far more acutely. How well-fitted is such a one to be our great high priest, how self-sufficient he is to supply our every need. It's a mouthful, but it's great. Okay, so Jesus is our high priest. Uh, and there's a whole lot of, uh, another, you know, set of teachings on that which we don't have time to go into tonight. Uh, but if you want to know more about it, you know, delve into Hebrews uh, or come to Lost and Found this particular Sunday. I'm going to be talking about that, uh, specifically Melchizedek and Jesus' being, priesthood being in the order of Melchizedek. But, you know, anyway, uh, that's on the side. Um, all right, so uh, Jesus as King of Kings. How often does King of Kings appear in the New Testament? Anybody know? Hmm? A bunch. If you consider two a bunch, you're right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Revelation 17, 14, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him, uh, with him will be his call chosen and faithful followers. And the other reference is also in Revelation. Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the title indicates somebody who exercises absolute power. Absolute power, dominion over his realm. And Jesus' realm is what? What? Creation. The whole universe. Again, go back to Hebrews 1. You'll see it there. Uh, he's, he's ruler of the whole universe, Lord of the whole universe. So when Jesus is called King of Kings and Lords of Lord, Lord of Lords, it means that in the end, all rulers uh, uh, will be conquered, all kingdoms will, will be abolished except his. He alone will be supreme King of Kings over all the earth. So in kind of summing up uh, this section on Jesus the Messiah, Christ the Lord, uh, we'll say this. The Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, became Jesus of Nazareth at the Incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth was anointed to be and authorized to act as the Messiah at his baptism. By his death and resurrection, Jesus the Messiah was appointed to be and authorized to act as our merciful and faithful high priest, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. At his second coming, he will reign as king of kings over a restored creation. You could add there king of kings and judge, also final judge. Right? Any questions about Jesus? <laughs> I'm sure. A lot of questions about Jesus. <laughs> okay. All right, let's talk about the justification by faith. This touches on, again, as I mentioned, several doctrines, the doctrines of man, doctrines of sin, and the doctrines of Christ. Biblical justification is forensic. What do I mean by that? 
Anybody want to jump on that? Biblical justification is forensic. What does forensics have to do? It's the law, legal and stuff. Okay. Justification uh, of uh, Christians is a legal concept. Uh, justification is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is the legal decree of conviction against a guilty person. Justification, on the other hand, is the legal decree of acquittal from all guilt such that condemnation and punishment are removed. Forensically, condemnation and justification have nothing to do with moral character. Being justified by God has nothing to do with our moral character. Okay, as is so evident. <laughs> so that's great. Yeah, uh, we're not perfect. We're still being, we're in the process of our sanctification. Uh, so, in, in other words, condemnation is not finding a person, uh, uh, finding uh, a person who's uh, finding that a person is morally sinful. And justification is not a finding of moral righteousness. When we're justified, we are not morally righteous. We're saved sinners, but we're not morally righteous. The Greek word to justify means to declare righteous, not to be made righteous. So God has declared us righteous. It's like the judge said, not guilty. You are acquitted. You're still the same person. Morality hasn't changed. But in the eyes of the law, you're found not guilty. We don't, you're, get, what we we don't get what we deserve. Very good. Thank you. Uh, so Christian righteousness resulting from God's decree of acquittal from sin is not ethical moral perfection. It's relational. It's relational. George Eldon Ladd in his textbook, A Theology of the New Testament, says this. The justified person has, in Christ, entered into a new relationship with God. The forensic righteousness of justification is a real righteousness. God does not treat sinners as though they were righteousness. They are, in fact, righteous. That is, absolved from sin by God's verdict. Through Christ, they have entered into a new relationship with God and are, in fact, righteous in terms of that relationship. Now, we are looking at justification by faith, so we need to ask ourselves, what role does faith play in our justification? Is that a fair question to ask? Well, it should be, because that's where we're going next. All right. So, um, <clears throat> the ground of justification is not um, <clears throat> obedience to the law. It is the death of Jesus Christ. The means by which justification becomes efficacious to the individual is faith. You see the difference? Again, the ground of justification is not obedience to the law, it's the death of Jesus Christ. The means by which justification becomes efficacious to the individual is faith. Okay? Justification is a gift bestowed to be received by faith. And we read here in Romans 3, 24 and 25, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice 
of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So that's the role of faith. Now, is there any relationship between justification and works for the believer? Yes, yes there is. What might that relationship be? And that working of the justification, okay? Again, justification is not the result of human effort or good works. Good works do not lead to justification, but what does justification lead to? Good works. So there's the connection. Justification leads to good works. Good works verify our faith is genuine and make our justification evident to other people. Hence, we are witnesses of Jesus to the world. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Again, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, though he is referred to as the third person of the Trinity. We covered this in in some detail when we talked about that, about him back in October. Uh, Scripture affirms that the Holy Spirit's uh, personhood is real. Because he's referred to uh, as um, being um, treated uh, as a person. He acts like a person, has attributes of a person, and we relate to him personally. And the Holy Spirit continues to work in the believer's life. And that begins at what? At what point does the Holy Spirit's work begin in our lives? What? Provider, okay. I think most of us can probably say in in hindsight, the Holy Spirit was working in my life there. I didn't see it at the time, but I know that he was. Uh, And then there comes the point where he he really, really moves. And that is uh, the work of bringing us to faith in Christ um, John 3, 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who calls us, draws us to, and makes it possible for us to accept what Christ did for us. Defined person? Can I give you a definition of that? Um, I could say something like human. Uh, I could say it has personality, something that is sentient in a sense. Uh, but I don't know, theologically, I can't rattle a de- theological definition right off the top of my head. Anybody got one? We'll entertain it. Bob? Okay, well, that's, that's helpful. It's helpful. Okay. The wind blows. And you can see it shivering the leaves, bending the branches, toppling the trees. 
real, but it's only a perception. See, you, you can't see the wind. You can see the wind's effects, the effects of the wind. And that's what we see. And the effects of the Holy Spirit we can see in our lives and the lives of others. Is the Holy Spirit provenient grace? Is that your question? I don't know that I would say that. Bob, you have anything to say that? The, the, Maybe uh, clarify for everybody that's even thinking that what provenient grace means because not everybody can understand. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to go look it up myself off the top of my head because I'm, I'm just not, yeah. Well, then, then yes, uh, it would be, um, you, know, you could say the Holy Spirit, would, in that context, the Holy Spirit would be an agent of provenient grace. Yeah. Okay, good, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so in this context, uh, let's take a look at what John Murray said in his uh, little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. For entrance into the kingdom of God, we are wholly dependent upon the action of the Holy Spirit an action which is compared to that on the part of our parents by which we are born into the world. We are as dependent upon the Holy Spirit as we are upon the action of our parents in connection with our natural birth. We were not begotten by our father because we decided to be, and we were not born of our mother because we decided to be. We did not decide to be born. We do not have the spiritual perception of the kingdom of God, nor do we enter into it because we willed or decided to do it. If this privilege is ours, it is because the Holy Spirit willed it, and here all rests upon the Holy Spirit's decision and action. So for anybody who thought that salvation was your idea, <laughs> think again. Uh, and this, was, this took me a long time as I was working through, you know, how does this all work? You know, and it's, it's like somebody told me once, it's like the phone rings, okay, and it's the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to get up and answer it. You know, I thought that, was, that, that helped me at the time anyway. That's kind of what's going on here. So, and the desire to answer. Yeah, and the desire to answer. Not only the ability to do it, but the desire to. Thank you, Bob. That's good. Uh, <clears throat> So the Holy Spirit work continues through the work of sanctification in helping Christians become progressively more like Jesus. He superintends our sanctification. Uh, he empowers and indwells us. He equips us with special gifts for service. He aids us in properly interpreting the Bible. And he comforts us. That's our, those are our first three items, okay, our first three beliefs, okay, so now it's time for a little bit of table discussion. Since there are three elements here, no table is going to have time to do all this, so here's what I want to do. So there's, uh, there's a discussion A, B, and C. So listen up. Tables one through four, take A. Tables five through eight, take B. Tables nine through 11, take C. And if you have time to get through the one that's assigned to you, you know, go on to another one if you'd like. Okay, but start with your assignments, and uh, we'll uh, give us about, where are we? Uh, you know, somewhere eight, maybe eight minutes or so to talk about these, and then we'll debrief.
Okay, let's stop there. Uh, sound like a lot of good discussion taking place. So tables one through four. Tables one through four, what might you say to someone who asks you why it's important for Jesus to be fully God and fully man? People, people, really. <laughs> hey, I don't have the bell. I just have the voice. All right, tables one through four. What might you say to somebody who asks this question? Very good, very good. Or refer to, yeah. <laughs> or refer, refer to the teacher. <laughs> I have some thoughts I'll share in a minute. Uh, okay, uh, next group of tables, tables five through eight, you had B. Uh, what might you say to someone to help them understand that justification by faith is a legal concept? I see finger pointing over here at this one table. <laughs> Our table talked about it and said that we didn't like the whole thing about the legal conduct, the judgment that's happened, that's legally he is allowed to go, if that's what God's done because of your faith in Jesus. And how do you think that would fly? I mean, if the thing is you've met all the, all the sides of the legal side of, mm -hmm. if you've done the belief that God is that understanding, I like it. Yeah, I think that was a good, that's a good example. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, groups, uh, tables 9 through 11. You had the last one. What might you say to someone to help them understand the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing someone to Christ? I see they abandoned. <laughs> okay, who, who moved? <laughs> The parent analogy, why don't you unpack that for us? Well, the idea that just as we didn't choose to be born, it was a, a decision by our parents, we don't choose to be saved, it's a decision by the Holy Spirit. Right. It's, and that's probably one of the simplest explanations, and it's fairly um, you know, pointed. And it gets the point across very easily. Okay. Uh, well, good. It sounds like a lot of great discussion, so thank you very much for taking time to do that. So let's move on to our... Uh, oh, let me just give you a couple of um, uh, summary statements here for what we just talked about. So for the first one, we could say something like, uh, humanity's sin incurred the wrath of God. Consequently, humanity had to atone for its sin before reconciliation with God was possible. But the cost to atone for the sin was so great that while humanity alone owed it, only God could pay it. So the only person who could effectively atone for humanity's sin must be both human and God. And for our second discussion question, just as condemnation is a legal decree of conviction against a person guilty, uh, against a guilty person, justification is a legal decree of acquittal from all guilt such that condemnation and punishment are removed. 
Through faith in Christ, Christians are absolved from sin by God's verdict. And the last one, fallen humanity is blind to the reality of the kingdom of God because of sin. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to this reality. To be born into the kingdom of God, we are as dependent on the Holy Spirit as we are upon the action of our parents in connection with our natural birth. So there's some summary statements there for you. All right, so let's move on to this uh, next belief. Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. And this falls under the overall, the umbrella of the doctrine of the church. 1 Corinthians 12-13 says, Just as a body, uh, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, uh, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you may have received mercy. So whether Jew or Gentile, uh, once you accept Christ, you are part of his, you're part of the people of God. Um, there's, uh, there's no distinction in God's eyes. Uh, there's an interesting um, concept here. I'm going to refer to it as inclusivity within exclusivity. Most of us have probably heard the objection that uh, Christianity is exclusive. Anybody not heard that? Okay. Uh, we've all heard it in some way, shape, or form. Um, uh, Acts 4.12 uh, says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So the only way to God for our salvation is through Jesus Christ. And that's, that's pretty exclusive. That doesn't leave much room for any other options. So in a sense, the one way to God is exclusive. That's, that's Jesus. Now, being that that's the case, does Jesus being the only way to salvation bar anybody from heaven? No, it's not a bar. I mean, the fact that there's only one way is, does not preclude that anybody has the option to take that way, okay? And so what people are really objecting to is a way they don't want to take. That's, that's the objection. It's the way that they don't want to take for whatever reason, and the, and, and the, the reasons are probably legion. Uh, so here, I want to say this. Jesus' exclusive claim that he is the way does not bar anybody from heaven. There's no litmus test for coming to Jesus. Jesus did not alienate the religious establishment of his day because he was accused of being exclusive, just the opposite. It was his being inclusive that was the problem. Welcoming tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, and sinners, that got them into trouble. Okay? And so it is you know, today that uh, there is, there's no bar that Christianity is, it's, I mean, it's as inclusive as it, can, as it can be. 
No one's to be turned away. There's no litmus test for you know, making that first step. Um, so that's, that's just an important, I think, uh, point to remember when we're talking with folks you know, about this, that there really is no bar. If you feel the Holy Spirit moving in your life, if you feel compelled to make that move, uh, follow that leading. Um, and uh, this also, um, that the Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. When we're talking about people being one in Christ, we're really talking about the body of Christ, which is the church. And the English word for church uh, comes from uh, the Greek word kyrios, uh, which means belonging to the Lord. It's also the related word ekklesia. And ekklesia is the Greek from ek, ek meaning uh, out from and to. It's out from something to something else. That's what ek means. Uh, and then you have kelio, which means to call. So it means to call out from to something else. That's really what it means. It's the total of all believers whom God has called out from the world and into his eternal kingdom. And part of the doctrine of the church, and that's being one in Christ, has to do with the unity of the church, which is so well stated by Jesus in John 17, 20 through 23, where he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as, uh, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that, we, that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as uh, you have loved me. So Jesus' desire for us, Jesus' desire for his church is to allow no divisions to separate us. Uh, whether that's ethnicity, socioeconomic, nationality, language, politics, uh, uh, or secondary doctrinal beliefs. Uh, those things are not to separate us and impede our unity. Our objective is simply to celebrate God's diversity in the, the wide net that he casts to make his people one in Christ. Obedience with faith among the nations. This is the doctrine also, the doctrine of the church. Um, I, I kind of struggled with this. Anybody, when you were reading the material, did you kind of, anybody struggle with what they were trying to get at here? Yeah. You did? Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Um, it's, it's just kind of, a, it's an odd phrase. Um, obedience of faith among the nations. So uh, I'm going to give you the, the best I was able to come up with on this, and hopefully uh, it may be able to shed some light on it for you. Um, the, the authors of uh, Cask and Empty uh, state that the opening sentence of Romans declares that through Jesus Christ, we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So we see that up here, Romans 1.5. Um, and uh, the Greek word, this is interesting, the Greek word here in verse 5 uh, really means, here it is, um, uh, it means submission to what is heard. That's what obedience means in this context, submission to what is heard. Uh, so the word uh, translated obedience could just as easily be translated submission. I looked at this verse in 64 different biblical translations to see if any of them translated this word 
other than obedience and made a submission, and not one of them did. And I think that's unfortunate. Not that I'm smarter than any of those other people. I just, as I was thinking about it, I just, I just found that a little uh, troubling because of this. Um, because obedience means compliance with an order, request, or law to another's authority, but the implication is that it's forced compliance. It's forced compliance uh, out of fear of punishment from the authority. Submission, on the other hand, means the action of accepting or yielding to the will or authority of another person, but the implication is it's voluntary compliance out of respect, gratitude, or love for the authority. And to me, I think that more reflects, I think, what's going on here uh, for us as Christians. Not that we are, are forced to be obedient because of fear of punishment, but because that we want to comply because that we respect the authority. We have gratitude for what he did for us, and we love him for what he did for us. So I think the authors of Cassianity might be trying to say here is that Christians out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us willingly display our faith in him by submitting to his call in our lives to be his witnesses in a hurting and dying world. Um, so perhaps rather than Obedience of faith among the nations, as they've taught, labeled this particular um, uh, belief, possibly it would be submit to Jesus to be his witnesses. That just rang, I think, a little clearer to me. I'll, if it's helpful for you, that's fine. If it's not any helpful, that's, you know, maybe you can come up with something different. But just think, think about it if it really uh, did, if you kind of trip over it. Uh, but overall, I mean, I like what they were getting at, and I appreciate what they were getting at. I just think their wording was a little awkward. So. I offer that just for your consideration. Okay. I want to say yes, please. Well, and, yeah, and there, and there are, there, there, there are variances here, and I'm not saying I'm thinking in this particular instance, not, not overall, but in this particular passage, I felt in just reading it, I thought there could be a, just a, you know, a different, different word here, submission instead of obedience. But again, that's just you know, personal purpose. But your point is well taken, Carol, and there are certainly areas where obedience, I think, is you know, right on point. So, uh, Yes? Could well be. Sort of the way, in other words, it, it's kind of like this is the way our faith plays out among the nations in the world where we are. That we are to be salt. Salt and light. Salt and light. Yes. Okay. Good. Thank you. All right, let's move on to uh, this next one. The call of Christians to be living sacrifices holy to the Lord. Again, this falls under the doctrine of the church. Uh, to be made holy, we see in Hebrews 10.10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And to be made holy uh, means to be set apart from the service in service to God. 
So being made holy is we're called out to be of service. Set like the holy things in the temple were holy because they were set apart for service for God. In the popular uh, passage we see in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the last point I want to make here in being called out uh, as living sacrifices is that we are bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit, whom, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Would that we wake up every morning saying that to ourselves. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's a, it's, a, it's a small verse, but that's a powerful, powerful verse. If you think about it, and we don't think about it often enough, that we're not our own, because pretty much we go about our daily business thinking that we are, with probably some good reason, because we're all tasked with doing things that we're responsible for, but we're not our own. Uh, and we were bought at a price, a very dear, steep price was paid for us. Let's go to our second group discussion. Discuss what you would say to someone who says to you, tell me three or four important things I need to know about the Christian church. What is this organism? What is this organism? Tell me some things that I need to know about this. If you want me to be a Christian and join your church, what am I getting into? Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Okay, let's stop there. <clears throat> All right, so the floor is open. Um, <clears throat> what would you say to someone who says to you, tell me three or four important things I need to know about the Christian church? <clears throat> Somebody want to offer at least one? Be careful with what church you choose. Yes, some churches, not all churches give the truth. Right, so that's important to know. Find one that does. It's ever reforming. Yeah. What do you mean by that? One thing example is that what you call the Middle Ages. Uh, right, so when you had the, the Reformation came along to correct some imbalances in, in doctrine and beliefs, and the church is, is, continues to reform in certain ways. All right, good. What else? The church is about a relationship, first of all, with Jesus and God, okay. and then with other believers. Okay, church is about a relationship. It's relational base, first with God and Jesus, and then with one another in the body of Christ. Thanks, Scott. Here's a little summary statement you might want to keep in mind. The Christian church consists of all who have been justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a diverse, universal community committed to being Jesus' witnesses as it serves others in a hurting and troubled world. Something, so if somebody asks, that's what you were thinking, right? Okay. <laughs>
All right. You said that to somebody who had no clue what the church was. Yeah. You go, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and they say, they, they, they'll just say, well, prove it. Well, then you got your work cut out for you, right? Just you know, continue the dialogue. Let's have coffee again next week, right. you know, kind of thing. All right. Okay, this is our last belief for uh, this evening. Christ will return in glory as judge. And this touches on uh, the doctrine of last things or the consummation of all things. It's a fair statement to say that all of the New Testament is eschatological. All of the New Testament is eschatological. What we mean by that is it has to do with last things. From Matthew to Revelation... It has to do with last things. It has to do with last things. <laughs> uh, yeah, it means uh, have things having to do with the end, the, end, the end of time, the end of the age, the great eschatology, the end of the age, the end of this present age okay, is what eschatology deals with. So every book of the New Testament looks forward to Jesus' second coming, every one of them in some way, shape, or form, looks forward to Jesus' second coming. Jesus' first coming inaugurated the kingdom of God. His second coming is going to bring the kingdom of God to its full consummation. Okay? And where we are right now is living in between these two events, Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So in a sense, the kingdom of God is here. It is already, but it is also not yet so we're living in the already had, you know, already but not yet period between the two comings. Humanity's future in the present age uh, really focuses on our physical death and then the intermediate state. So what's happening in the present age and all the things that lead up to if Jesus doesn't come back before we die, uh, then we will pass away in this life and be transported into our new life uh, in heaven, which is the intermediate state. Our intermediate state, after we die, it's not the final, that's not the final uh, chapter. There's more to come. Everybody, under, everybody know that? Okay, there's more to come. So when we die, we are with Jesus in heaven. But heaven isn't the final stop. Okay, there is the final stop, which is the new earth, which will come after Jesus returns. Uh, so in the age to come, what we're talking about is the resurrection of the body, Jesus' second coming, the final judgment, and the final state. So when Jesus judges the world, when Jesus comes as judge in glory, we're talking about something that happens in the age to come after his return. It doesn't happen in this age. It happens in the age to come. Okay. Um, John Piper says this, when it comes to Jesus' glory, because we're talking about, you know, he's going to return in glory. Christ, is, Christ in his revealed glory is the central reality of the second coming. God's glorification in Jesus Christ happens most fully and climatically when God's people experience his glory as profoundly marvelous. Jesus' glory lies in his, uh, his worth as a son of God, his greatness as the Messiah, his faithfulness as our high priest, and the beauty and radiance of his resurrected body. So it means when we're talking about Jesus' glory, all these things come into play. And this is how he will appear at his second coming. 
And at his second coming, coincidentally with that, there are a number of events that occur, one of which is the final judgment. Uh, the Bible always speaks of the final judgment as a single event. Most of us have probably heard about the judgment scene of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, and the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. These are the same events. These are the same event, I should say, singular. Scripture holds that the righteous and the wicked appear together in judgment for a final separation. Uh, I have some scriptural references there that you can look up when you get the notes. There's the timing of this. When does this happen? When is the second judgment? Well, it follows the resurrection of the dead. Matthew 25, 31 and 32 says, and this is Jesus speaking, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is the final judgment. Jesus, of course, will be the judge. Now, what's the standard for being judged? Okay, faith in him. Okay. What about those who don't have faith in him? Beth? Sure. The, the BMC, well, this is, uh, well, no, it's the same. It's the same? It's the same. But isn't that based on, like, you're, it, I thought that was amongst believers, for good works done and crowns are given. Well, and so when, when, when the judgment comes, okay, our judgment is going to be on our, not on our works, but, but we, and I'm going to get this in just a minute. Okay, uh, but the judgment is going to be, again, when people who are separated, okay, these are the Christians, these are the believers over here, and then these are the non-believers, okay? So that's the separation. And then he turns to the believers and go, here are your rewards. Yes, so that's, oh, but it's all part, part of the same event. Okay. Good, great question. Thank you for that. Part of the same event. I'm going to get that in just a second, too. Okay, so those who receive the full revelation of God's will as conveyed in the Bible will be judged by their response to that revelation, which is the gospel. You're going to be judged on what you did with the gospel. If you heard the gospel, you're going to be judged on whether you accepted it or rejected it. Okay. And then those who received neither the revelation found in the Old Testament nor New Testament will be judged in terms of the light they had. And you only need to look at Romans 1 through 18 to see that. Uh, Romans uh, 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God's glory appears in creation. And you have no reason for not believing in him. Okay, so that's part of, part of that. Now, the rewards of the believers, okay, uh, again, that's the standard judgment. The words of the believers. Believers are justified by our faith, as we talked about earlier. On the day of judgment, our works will be judged, and we will be rewarded for what we've done for Jesus in this life. Okay? And these rewards are bestowed on us without any reference to merit. Okay? These are not meritorious rewards. 
Okay, there's no merit. It's just things that, that God has looked at and sees that we have done. And salvation is about the works. No, salvation is about God's work for us. Rewards about our works for God. Okay, salvation is God's work for us, but what the rewards are about our works for God. The extent of a believer's reward appears to be based on the quality of the work done during our lives, built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, and this is where it talks about building on uh, you know, solid foundation or sandy foundation, so you can look that up. Um, but it's on you know, how, what we did uh, with our life uh, for Christ is going to matter. Some, if not all, our heavenly rewards will come in the form of what? Crowns. Okay? And the Bible specifically mentions five crowns. The crown of life, which is for faithfulness to Christ in persecution or martyrdom. The incorruptible crown for determination, discipleship, and victory in the Christian life. The crown of glory for faithfully representing Christ in a position of spiritual leadership. The crown of righteousness for purifying and readying ourselves to meet God at his return. And the crown of rejoicing for pouring ourselves into others in evangelism and discipleship. And all these crowns are graciously given by Jesus. And when we get them, what are we going to do with them? Throw him at his feet. Isn't that cool? That's just a, just, that's just a cool picture. Yeah. Um, okay, this brings us to the millennium. Okay. And I say this intentionally with only two minutes to go because I'm not going <laughs> to get it. So when we're talking about the millennium, we're really talking about six verses in Revelation 20. It's the only place in the Bible where this is talked about. All right, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Uh, and from these, uh, uh, these six verses, four views have arisen about what this millennium is all about. And they're referred to as amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. And for those of you uh, who are, have read the Left Behind series uh, or, in, or the late great planet Earth, you know, back in the 70s, if you were around back then, uh, which of these does that portray? Dispensational premillennialism. Of these four, it is the newest view on the horizon. It is only about 200 years old. And it was developed by John Nelson Darby, who was an Englishman in about 1830. Okay. The oldest of these is amillennialism or amillennialism. Uh, and uh, then there's um, uh, historic premillennialism. Uh, amillennialism. amillennialism really came out like in the first century. That's how old it is. Okay. Historic premillennialism uh, appeared uh, in the third century AD. Uh, and I just mentioned dispensational uh, premillennialism uh, being uh, around you know, 1830. And postmillennialism uh, made an appearance originally in the Netherlands uh, around the 1500s, early 1600s. Um, there's, uh, uh, I mean, you can find this stuff very easily online, so I'm not going to spend you know, much time going on it. But this is a graphical illustration of kind of the events that take place during the various millennial views. Uh, so, uh, again, this will be in the uh, handout, uh, the notes that I'm going to give to Sarah, and she's going to get out to you. So uh, you can take a look at those at, uh, at your convenience because uh, it's, it's a fascinating topic. It's, it's fun to talk about. And by the way, our denomination does not subscribe to any one of those. Okay? Well, there's no doctrinal statement that says this is what we believe. It used to be, it used to be this. 
up until several years ago. Uh, and then they just kind of backed up and said, makes no difference to us. You can, so there's no prescribed belief by our denomination, just so you're aware of that. Okay. So as we wrap up this evening, again, our big idea was being one of Jesus' disciples means you subscribe to certain key beliefs that define Christianity. And to connect our you know, discussion this evening to the one redemptive story, we could say that key doctrines beliefs that define Christianity find their roots in the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures and in many respects attempt to articulate the climatic elements of the one redemptive story. What Christian doctrine has the advantage of is we know the ending. We see the ending. The Old Testament, they didn't have that. So in the doctrinal statements that we have, we have those with a full knowledge that we're trying to capture what best that we can what we know about the end of the redemptive story. That makes elements of the, the redemptive story. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, we're right at 8 o'clock. Let me uh, go ahead and... Um, and pray for us. Uh, I'll be here afterwards if anyone wants to come up and chat. I'm uh, happy to uh, entertain your questions or comments. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that uh, your spirit has guided and directed uh, your people to try as best as we can to understand elements of who you are and how you interact with the world that you've made. We know that almost everything that we try to create to explain these things falls short in some way, shape, or form. But in sincere hearts, we try our best to capture things that they glorify you and what you've done in this world. We pray that you will continue to enlighten our hearts, that we will grow in our understanding of uh, these things that we hold dear to us, that separate us from the world, and let us be the light and the salt that you want us to, to be and to have. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit, your Son, and for your very life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.